Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's special edition of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Recently, RFK Jr. showed up on Joe Rogan and on the podcast, and he ran with his usual stick about the anti-vax, anti-ag, anti-you name it. And I had a lot of back and forth happening on Twitter about this, and he has a lot of vicious folks who, who have accepted his claims, and, and he's wrong. And unfortunately, Rogan did too. And I was on with Joe Rogan back on episode 200, or I'm sorry, 655, and we had a great conversation. He's a good dude at heart, and, and, and it would be wonderful if he was an asset of the scientific community. And I know people have really said a lot of bad things about him, but you know, at his core, he's a guy who's, I think, you know, looking for answers just invites the wrong people to ask the questions to. <laughs> except for when I was on, of course. He does have some legit guests, but he's had a lot of really bad folks who've tarnished really important conversations around vaccination, medicine, COVID, food farming, all that good stuff. So unfortunately, he stumbled into a, a nest of cranks and charlatans, conspiracy goofs, fringe opinions, and a lot of this really departs from the scientific consensus. So I've always said that he needs a scientific advisory board not to be censored. Well, he needs, we don't need to censor him. He needs a scientific advisory board, is what I said. I wrote an article on Medium about why the world needs Joe Rogan and, and why science needs him. And so you can check that out there. I think I'm right. So lately, he's really succumbed to the BS on glyphosate. And this is the herbicide that's used with genetically engineered crops and used in other capacities by municipalities, weed control, all that stuff. And it's a ubiquitous compound that everybody uses because it works great with low toxicity. That's, that's what it's cheap. It was a lot cheaper, but recently online, he, I guess he was talking to Robert Malone, the, 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 the guy who claims to have invented the MRNA vaccines, who, who was injecting MRNA in the mice years ago and showing different things in the cells and into mice. But it really didn't invent the vaccine. But anyway, different story. But Malone and others in the anti-vax or anti-COVID area have kind of seen their spotlight shrinking a little bit as the pandemic wanes. And they've kind of started to see that maybe they could kind of laterally move into some of these other areas and remain relevant. So Malone is now an expert on glyphosate, apparently. And he was wrong about everything. And I was fielding comments on Twitter and I was, you know, addressing concerns and doing what I usually do, sharing the science and giving references. And uh, Rogan, I believe, was referring to me when he referred to me as an, a Monsanto apologist. So here's the problem. The washed up physician who is making wild claims about something he knows nothing about is okay, but a legitimate scientist speaking about something he studied his whole life is an apologist for a company that hasn't existed in five years. So this is the problem. This really goes off the rails when he's had this recent talk with RFK Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I sat through listening to this interview shaking my head, not just about the claims about glyphosate, 
but about vaccination, about COVID, about 5G, you name it. I mean, RFKJ is off the rails. And he's a persuasive speaker. You know, he's a well-trained attorney, but he gets the science wrong consistently. And as an attorney, he's good at creating relationships and extrapolations between data points that don't prove to be correct, yet they're plausible and they are tend to agree and reinforce the biases of the listener. So people are willing to buy it. So I felt I had an obligation today to at least address some of these points in my area of expertise. So I'm not going to talk about the vaccination and COVID and other areas like that, which I could do, but it would take forever. It takes 10 minutes to, of a legitimate science to refute one minute of BS, as you'll hear here. So I followed the glyphosate story since the early 90s and really through the development of Roundup Ready Crops. I, I really was interested in this as a part of genetic engineering, which I've followed since I was a kid. And I'm, I've never done direct research in this area. I, we have done a lot with glyphosate. We're trying to develop a, an enzyme that was resistant that we could use as a selectable marker in tissue culture. But, but I know this stuff inside and out, and I've read the literature. I think probably have read almost every paper on the subject. So, And I know that that sounds impossible because there are tens of thousands of them. But I, I, I actively review the literature on, on what's happening in this area. The reason I've gotten interested is maybe not so much the science of genetic engineering and, and the compound, the chemical itself, but really the so social psychology side of this. It, it's very interesting to see continual claims made against a compound that has like, universally shown to be safe and effective, or at least extremely low risk and effective. Nothing's safe. We know can't say that. Everything has extremely low, he has extremely low risk, effective in what it does. It has some limitations. It certainly has things it does well, it has things it doesn't do well. We know all that. And I've studied that from the beginning. We know you can't use it around aquatic environments because it can restructure aquatic environments, especially when used as Roundup, which is the glyphosate compound plus a surfactant. I can think of it as a detergent that helps it penetrate the cells. And so when you put it in an aquatic environment, it can have effects on an aquatic environment because of that detergent as well as possibly the compound itself. You know, you're bathing animals in it. So anyway, let's get back to the, you know, why I'm interested. It was very interesting to see the anti-GMO movement start to go after glyphosate because they tried for years to make us think that the crops were dangerous. And that never panned out to be true. You know, 30 years went by and we saw not even a tummy ache from from genetically engineered crops. So the easy slide is to move to the chemistry associated with it because it's easy to scare people about chemistry compounds because we're scientifically illiterate as a nation or if we can easily be coerced into some sort of compound being dangerous, especially one that comes from a uh, company that's had a bad reputation that maybe it earned, maybe it didn't. Historically, certainly has its name on many Superfund sites and other problems, and its more recent incarnations has become strictly a seed company, with the exception of the production of the compounds that you use on the seeds. Anyway, so I look at this from a social psychology side. How have people been manipulated to hate something that's not bad? And how have the lawsuits been filed? And how have they been successfully argued in court to influence a jury when 
the scientific consensus says that the jury was absolutely wrong. And so this is where, where I get into this, and I really think about it, really have a good time playing with it. The What's going on here? And that's what's really interesting to me. And this is what a lot of people who are targeting farming in the United States are doing. If they can get rid of glyphosate, they can get rid of any agricultural chemical. And so this really is maybe, I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I hope I'm not being conspiratorial here. It's a war on the American farmer. And I don't know who to blame. It's not just activists. It's not just these little, you know, you know, a couple of, you know, knuckleheads in cubicles in, in Oakland who are, you know, or, or folks working out of a P.O. box collecting checks to write bad stuff about people. It's not the anti-Monsanto folks, I don't think. Maybe it's lawyers who are trying to cash in on this, or maybe it's some sort of foreign interest that if you can break the trust in the American food supply, it's the one thing we still make here, you know, is food, is the raw commodities, other than TikTok videos, but food. So when I listen to RFK Jr., not only does he know nothing about vaccination literature, autism, whatever. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. But he's clueless about glyphosate. Clueless. Absolutely clueless. So when I step into conversations online, I get slammed by his minions, as I'm clearly a shill for Monsanto and need to do your research. So this is what where it's extremely frustrating. So let's address his claims in real time. These are the excerpts from his recent appearance on Joe Rogan. And I'll give my little retort after I play each vignette. There's a, there's, uh, there's many, many diseases are linked to glyphosate exposure. So we start right off the top. Many diseases linked. <laughs> and linked to him means that somebody has taken the red yarn and gone from stick, stick pin one on the corkboard to stick to pin two to stick pin three the linkage means that somebody somewhere had some crackpot idea that they managed to either sneak into the peer-reviewed literature or write something about and the links are extremely tenuous so it's not about a link it's about how strong are your links and dr don huber the guy who said that there was a secret organism that he had identified and, and lied to everybody including the agriculture secretary of the united states in a letter to him Don Huber has a list of like 50 diseases that are associated with, with, with glyphosate. Nancy Swanson's paper from 2014 with Stephanie Seneff, they say, oh, look at these correlations. They're one-on-one -on -one with thyroid cancer and Parkinson's and you know, whatever the list was. And these are the links. They're not scientific links. They're not firm, experimentally tested links. They're tenuous claims that he considers evidence. And later in this discussion, you'll hear him even say that when he went to the court with, to, do, to file what they call a Daubert motion, that they couldn't prove any of them, that they couldn't prove any of these ailments except for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, that they said there was evidence enough for that to admit in a court case. But all these claims he's making, he even says they, there's no evidence to support including non-alcoholic fatty liver cancers are very, very closely linked. A lot of kidney diseases. Uh, so he makes the mistake right off the bat that 
All right. He says they're non-alcoholic fatty liver cancers are very closely linked. And let's, let's talk about that before kidneys. These claims come from a couple different sources. And, and the reason is, is because patient, patients with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, so this is a, this a fatty liver, are considered to be at a higher risk for fibrosis, where your liver cells convert to scar tissue and eventual develop of cirrhosis as the liver stops functioning, and then eventually a higher propensity of hepatocellular carcinoma with liver cancers. And there's a couple ways to look at this. And one, one study that was published in a journal, I can't remember because it was a small, weird paper in an unusual journal. It was Mills et al., 2020 or so. And what they looked at were patients with fatty livers, and they looked at their biopsies, and they determined you know, whether they had this NASH, which is the non-alcoholics, and, and those who just had fatty livers, the ones who had the disease versus fatty livers, two very different things. And they took urine from all of them and analyzed it, and they tested a broad swatch of people, and you know everything looked cool there. And what they found was that light glyphosate levels were low in everybody. So in the urine, there were 241 parts per billion reported for the non-NASH group and 344 parts per billion for those with NASH, you know, with the advanced cellular disease. And so 241 versus 344, wow, sounds like a huge difference. But think about it this way, 241 parts per billion is, is a billion... A part per billion is one second in 31 years. So this is like, what, four minutes in 31 years versus 344, five and a half minutes in, 30, in 31 years. So it, it's not, well, and, and actually they weren't shown to be statistically separable either in the paper. So the very small difference that is, can't be blamed on statistics because the variance, there's so much to wide variation in, in the detection. And that, that happens. So long story short, there was almost none there. The, the <laughs> researchers then look at AMPA, which is the breakdown product of glyphosate. And there they find a statistically significant difference. So they do something called glyphosate residue, where they take glyphosate and add a number to it, and then multiply that by AMPA levels. And then they get statistical significance. And then they are able to show that the, the group without the, without the advanced disease had 538 parts per billion, the other one had 841. So still, what would that be? It would be, you know, six minutes and something in 31 years versus, you know, nine minutes and something in, 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 in 31 years. So still very, very minor differences. Probably couldn't be related to anything physiological at those extremely low levels. The pharmacology just doesn't work that way. So, you know that that's one and that's one severe limitation of of the interpretations. They didn't look at people's diets, so nobody knows what anybody ate. They just know what came out of just knew what came out of them. And we know that glyphosate is broken down in the liver, um, small amount of it, five percent of it. Uh, most of it goes is excreted as glyphosate, but small amounts broken down in the liver. So if you had impaired liver function, you might be expected to have higher levels. And they didn't really discuss that in the paper, but you're, you're saying that these people who have impaired liver functions have higher levels of something that is broken down in the liver. So, eh, all, right, all right. Nonetheless, the levels are extremely low, and I can't imagine any drug or treatment causing a tissue level response at such levels. It just, it just is very strange. 
I'm not a toxicologist, but the dose makes the poison and there isn't evidence of a dose here, at least the difference between the two groups. I mean, these are very, very minor differences between things that are almost not there. But the fatty liver trope is reinforced by other places. So they quote the paper mentions and cites Misnage, which is the guy from the Seralini group. In 2017, they analyzed livers of rats and who were fed Roundup and, and claimed that there was disputed liver mitochondrial function and differences in the proteome and other things. And it, you know, seemed like reasonable work from, from this guy. And, uh, you know, my heart goes out to him. I think he's trying to be a legit scientist and trying to shake the reputation of the lumpy rat paper from 2012. But anyway, the problem is, is that when they did created the, when they generated the data for this paper showing you know, evidence of biomarkers of fatty liver disease, they used the tissue from the 2012 study. So the rats that were fed in very small groups, fed lots of, or fed glyphosate or fed Roundup Ready Corn or whatever, and were claimed to have had these monstrous tumors, they used their livers for this analysis. And, you know, you, you can really kind of question what that what might really mean because they saw the you know, these were rats that after two years had massive tumors because they're sprague dolly rats they're made to develop tumors as a cancer model so here you're taking tissue from something that's genetically impaired after it's already exhibiting distress as a cancer patient and now you're determining that there's problems with liver function so you know i don't know not not so good there were some legit reports that I really liked, and there's one that's called Fu et al. 2020, which came out of Northeastern Ag University in China, and they looked at weaning piglets, or weaned piglets, and they looked at 10, 20, 40 parts per million glyphosate as Roundup, so you added Roundup, the whole herbicide, not just the compound, and they fed them for 28 days, and they used the levels that were associated with, or that are known to be the limit of what is allowable on the raw commodities of things like soybeans okay, or corn. You know, if they detect this level or higher than this level, then that load is rejected. So they use that and fed that directly to the piglets. So not what's going to be ending up in the products down the line from this, but the raw commodity. And uh, they fed the piglets for 28 days, saw no real differences. And of course, we feed cattle and chickens and things in this country, you know, pigs eat tons of this stuff. And certainly we are aware of their animal health is actually really good anyway. But they fed, they did see some ultrastructural differences when you looked at the liver that were consistent with fatty liver disease in the highest levels. And those results were convincing. They followed dose response. They, they looked really good. I think those were legit. But there was no clear effect that said that this was dangerous and or had any other kind of effect on the piglets. And they looked at lots of other stuff. And they ended up concluding that the levels for safety limits were probably appropriate. There was another paper by Pandy et al. This was 2019. They fed rats 0 to 250 milligrams per kilogram for every day for 14 days. So 250 milligrams per kilogram. You think about a aspirin tablet is 250 milligrams. And one for every kilogram of your body weight of glyphosate. <laughs> and this was Roundup, not glyphosate. It was actually the whole compound. So, so a Roundup tablet, 250 milligrams per kilogram of your body weight. I'm 200, and, you know, let's just say 220 pounds. That's 100 kilograms. So I would have to take 100 
tablet-sized doses of Roundup every day for 14 days and see what happens. <laughs> now, you know, I'm not a rocket scientist, but my guess is, is that you might see something. And then it turns out they did. That in the really high dose groups, you saw that there were issues with gene expression and other things that happened. Not so much in the low groups. That would be consistent with high dietary exposure. So if anything, this is a paper that showed that things were safe. So there's absolutely no hard connection between fatty liver-based cancer, as Kennedy says there is. And there's evidence that if you feed piglets glyphosated levels tolerated on raw commodities for 28 days, they have some histological features that are consistent with fatty liver, but he oversteps every bit of the data. Now, what's going on with kidneys? And, and there's been some discussion about this, and claims about kidneys are also not founded in any hard mechanistic or epidemiological evidence. Where, where it comes from is actually kind of a, a little bit of a wild extrapolation into a real mystery. And there's been an unusual kidney disease, and they call it the chronic kidney disease of unknown etiology, that has been showing up in a couple places. And you see it in Mesoamerica, they call it Mesoamerica nephropathy. And this really started popping up in 2000 in places like El Salvador, but you see it all the way across Central America from Guatemala to Panama. You see examples of this. And this is a chronic kidney disease. Lots of people get it, mostly agricultural workers. You also see it, but, but let's, before we go to where else it is, here people are not using glyphosate so much, at least that I can tell. These are mostly in sugarcane and coffee workers. Also, people working on shrimp. So, I'm not sure what they're using, but you know, maybe there's something there. But whatever, that there, there's no good, obvious correlation there. It's also common in places in India where they grow rice, cashews, and coconuts, and some of their more horticultural areas. That this is also happening. But the big place where it was first brought to the public attention was in Sri Lanka. And it's been increasing since the early 90s. You see it in ag workers, mostly folks working on rice paddies. And all of these places, Sri Lanka, India, Mesoamerica, they all share commonalities, maybe in terms of insecticide use. Maybe they use crop protection chemistry. There's also some evidence of heavy metals being ubiquitous across these three areas. There's been claims about leptospirosis, which is an animal vector disease. I think it's uh, raccoons and other things can spread this. Maybe it's multifactorial, all the above. The other strange association is that these places tend to be the hottest places in the general area. So where the ag workers are working and where the crops are grown are these really hot areas. So they're thinking maybe even heat stress has been proposed and hypothesized, but nobody knows for sure. And the other big issue is that genetics of the population, and that in Sri Lanka, they've looked at some genetic similarities and see some things that are common among the people who have the effects. So it could be a segment of the population that's sensitive to one or all of these factors, and including possibly glyphosate, right? But there's no demonstration of that. But we'll leave it on the table because we don't know. And the glyphosate hypothesis started with one paper where a guy who was, I can't remember his name now, he's a scientist there, who is writing about the chronic kidney disease and happened to mention glyphosate once in the paper. And that was all that was needed to ignite the anti-GMO machine on a saying, look, glyphosate causes this kidney, this kidney disease. There's no evidence presented. It was a, a hypothesis only in a review paper. And, and that was all it was. 
he'd go on to write a couple other papers looking at glyphosate levels, things like that. Later, AAAS would recognize the author for his brave work against a lethal herbicide and actually wrote that on their website. And I sent a note and said, hey, you know, you might want to correct a lethal herbicide. And, and, and I actually did a podcast on this. This is in the Talking Biotech series. You know, help me understand how this is a lethal herbicide, but how this guy's work was great in calling it out. He actually brought attention that maybe detracted from understanding what the real cause is. But anyway, water under the bridge on that one. But in, in both cases, the fatty acid, I'm sorry, the fatty liver disease and in kidney disease, Ken, Kennedy speaks with absolute certainty. We have very, very strong evidence. No, there's no strong evidence. But this is what happens when you let a attorney try to play in the science area. And then severe damage to the microbiome. Severe damage to the microbiome. The microbiome has become an area of woo that they go to next because it's complex and poorly understood, highly variable between individuals. It's sort of a weird and mysterious pangenome that lives within us, and, and it's really cool. And, and certainly there probably are some connections between the microbiome and aspects of human health. I, mean, I think that's very obvious. We know that antibiotics, you know, when you take antibiotics, that that takes a toll on it and it's probably a do other factors. But those are delivered at, at very high levels and at least relative to the residues of glyphosate that are present in food. And, and he'll talk about why he feels there's an effect on the microbiome in just a minute. But what, what is the evidence of this? And, and what is the evidence of effect on microbiomes? This idea was, was kind of moving the goalpost more than anything else. When you couldn't show any effect of glyphosate on, on whole organisms or at least very minor ones at high doses, that if, if you, that, that maybe it's not affecting the, the organism, but maybe it's affecting the organisms within the organism. And if you look at the enzymes that are inhibited by, or the enzyme that's inhibited by glyphosate, some bacteria have that and, it, and it's sensitive to glyphosate. So obviously, the stuff that you're eating is inhibiting your gut microbiome and, and changing that. And, and, you know, that was their hypothesis. And the first experiments were, were carried out by Monica Kruger's group, who has always done very suspect work. They did just in a, in a, you know, basically in a vial. You introduce a couple different types of bacteria, you put in the compound and see which one, put in the glyphosate and see which, which species comes to dominate the culture. And they showed that it was some of the less favorable bacteria that would, would do it. And it's in a, in a, in a, shaker on the, on the shelf, not in the gut. And uh, there's trillions of bacteria inside the human gut and each one contains. So if you think about it this way, trillions of bacteria, okay. And, and each one has many of the enzymes that glyphosate inhibits. So you're going to need a good dose of stuff to affect a, a chunk of that population inside, inside the intestine. That's where a lot of the glyphosate goes. So when you do eat it, it would be in the right place. So that makes sense. That's good, consistent with that hypothesis. The other thing that you don't, that they don't account for is that glyphosate doesn't get into bacterial cells very easily. And we actually did these experiments because we were trying to engineer a version of, of an enzyme that glyphosate inhibits. We were trying to make another version of it. And we were using E. coli to grow this enzyme and then see if we could kill, if we could replace the defective enzyme in E. coli with the good enzyme. And long story short, we couldn't even get glyphosate into the cells. 
even at huge doses until we started to add surfactants. So we actually had to add other stuff like Roundup to get, get it into the cells. So it's, it's inside the parts per billion area, the surfactant and the active ingredient are entirely separate. They're different molecules that can't work together because both of them are so rare. It's, it's like taking a pair of identical twins and then dropping one in New York and one in San Francisco and saying that they may interact. It's very unlikely that they're going to do that. So the problem boils down to stoichiometry, and that's a fancy chemistry word for saying not enough stuff, that when you look at the amount that's there in parts per billion in dietary or even occupational exposure, and then you compare that against the number of cells and the fact it doesn't enter the cell, it's not bioavailable to the cell, and then once inside the cell, there's a lot of enzymes to inhibit, it, the chances of it actually working are extremely unlikely. And there's just not a likelihood of a pharmacological effect from such low doses. And, and that's just the way it goes. Antibiotics are, are delivered at levels much, much higher. And we know their mechanism of action. And, and so it's, it's a very different story. There was a good mouse study that I liked that showed a change in the microbiome after exposure to reasonable doses of glyphosate. So ones that may be in the highest daily li limits that were out there. I can't remember the author's name on this one, but they never saw physical changes in, in I think this was rats, but never saw physical changes, nothing there. But when you looked at the, the maximum, or you, looked at the, you looked at the microbiome in response to the maximum allowable levels you know, on food, that you would see changes in the, in the, in the microbial communities. And I, and I think those were pretty faithful changes, and I think those were legitimate. It's, and, you know, that's been there. There's also been the, but I, I don't know that it was deleterious. They didn't show any changes physically or behaviorally or anything else in the, in the rats. The other part of this is that a lot of people have gone and looked at the enzyme that glyphosate inhibits, and looked at its sequence in a variety of different bacterial species and could categorize them as glyphosate sensitive and glyphosate tolerant. And, and so those papers are out there and people say, look, there's, they look at that as high evidence of, a, of an effect when really it's just a computational prediction, which has some value. But RFK's claims of massive damage to the microbiome, there's no evidence of that. Because designed to kill plants and it and there are there are structures in your in your gut biome critical structures in your gut biome which have plant metabolisms which are destroyed by glyphosate and here's another example of of i think it's is it brandolini's law that it takes 10 minutes of of science to refute a minute of bs so what he's talking about, those structures that are inside your whatever, he's talking about the enzyme that glyphosate targets. Okay, so the enzyme 5-enolpyruvo-3-phosphate synthase is an enzyme that is involved in aromatic amino acid synthesis. So amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, and there are specific ones that are produced through a given pathway. And in plants, it's required, this pathway is required, and if you block that pathway, it can't produce these aromatic amino acids, which are essential. And so the plant dies. Certain bacteria have that same kind of pathway and the same kind of enzyme that's sensitive to glyphosate. We know that. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. So he says, okay, there are these structures, but these are enzymes. Nothing magical here. 
and some bacteria share that same chemistry with plants. Some don't, but, but that's what he's referring okay. to. And so, you know, what happened is glyphosate, and glyphosate was a, was originally developed as a, as a tank scalant. So to, to scale the calcium, calcium deposits from the inside of, you know, ground tanks. Well, he's right on this one. The compound was originally developed in Switzerland in the maybe 1940s or 50s, and they used it as a descaling agent. It was originally designed for that kind of thing because it binds divalent cations, which what, what does that mean? It binds compounds like or ions like calcium or magnesium, and that may be helpful in cleaning up some sort of metal or whatever. And that was originally what its purpose was because at high levels, you could use it in that capacity. It worked like a charm, I guess. Maybe not too good because we don't use it now for that, but Anyway, that's uh, that. He's right there. And in 1973, Monsanto had to producing DDT because you know we passed the laws at that time, and that was its flagship product. It needed a product, and it figured out that glyphosate. Somebody at some point apparently threw some glyphosate on the, out in the back in the yard, and everything green it touched it where it touched it. Say. So somebody said, oh, this will be a good herbicide because it kills all plants. Originally, Monsanto developed it as a, as a, as an herbicide, but the way that it was applied initially from 1973 to 1993 was in backpack sprayers. So guys would walk down the corn, corn rows early in the season when the corn was competing with nearby weeds for sunlight. And they would shoot the individual weeds. And it was recognized as a very safe and low toxicity herbicide. Remember at this point, 1973 and then through the 80s and 90s, it was undergoing continual recertification and reevaluation as an herbicide, both in the, well, in the United States and internationally. It was adopted by municipalities because it was cheap. It was easy to use. It was non-toxic, relatively non-toxic, at least at levels used. And you didn't require any, a uh, lot of special PPE. You could easily apply this with, you know, gloves and a long sleeve shirt. So this was a really important product for a long time. And then in 93, somebody figured out a way that, that glyphosate, there were certain bacteria that glyphosate would not kill. And they said, we could take a gene out of the bacteria and put it into a corn seed. A corn cannot be killed like the say. So let, let's sort this out. He's, you know, dancing around reality here. So it was determined that there was an agrobacterium strain called, P, called C53, which was not sensitive to glyphosate, that this bacterium would grow just fine in the presence of glyphosate. And when you looked at the enzyme that was inhibited, that three, that EPSPS enzyme, the three enolpyruvyl shikimate 5 the EPSPS enzyme was not affected. So glyphosate didn't bind this particular enzyme. So the enzyme worked just fine in the presence of the herbicide. And scientists thought, well, if you could take this enzyme, which is doing the same job it does in plants, and take it out of bacteria and put it in plants, you could make plants that also would not be sensitive to the herbicide. You could apply the compound, but plants wouldn't care. And it worked. It worked like a charm. And uh, this was really the basis for Roundup Ready cotton, corn, soy, sugar beets, and canola. So this is what he's referring to. Well, they developed Roundup Ready corn 
and that corn you could pour glyphosate all over it and it will do nothing to it so now you could fire all of those workers who are expensive and you hire one airplane and they fly over the fields they saturate the entire landscape with glyphosate everything dies except the roundup ready corn and listen to the language he uses a saturated high sprayed with high levels can endure high levels First, the corn has a specific doses. If you use too much, you will kill it. Um, so you're spraying with the recommended amount. And the recommended amount is about two soda cans of active ingredient per acre. So just a tiny little dot of this stuff. It ends up being uh, treated at something like 60 milligrams per square foot, so or per square, square meter. Very, very small amount. And uh, it works very well because it's present in such a tiny amount. And, and still works very well. That's why people like it. But this, listen to the rhetoric, how this is, you know, how it's saturated. And the other words that he uses to really malign what is really a useful product. The use of spraying this small amount really took over the need to till and break soil and use diesel and emit carbon dioxide and cause runoff of, of topsoil. So this has been a real benefit in conservation tillage and helping farmers manage their land at a lower cost and have better results. In the United States, is now Roundup Red corn. And so, but it was still being, and then they developed it for soybean and for, and for barley, for sorghum, for a lot of plants. No, it's never been developed for barley or sorghum, at least not in a commercial application. So once again, here he is making up information that just isn't true. But it was still being applied early in the season. And then in 2000, around 2006, they discovered if you sprayed it on wheat late in the season, it would desiccate wheat. In other words, it would dry it out. And one of the big losses for farmers is wheat is it rains during the harvest season. You can't harvest it because it gets moldy. And so if you can spray a desiccant on it and dries it out and kills it, harvest it right away and it won't get moldy so all the wheat in our country started being sprayed the year in 2006 with glyphosate and that's the year you saw this explosion of celiac diseases and gluten allergies and all of this stuff and false 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 and false and false okay so glyphosate was recognized so let's talk about wheat first so wheat does need to be dried down before it can be harvested as does you know other other grains like barley and and pulses too certain certain bean types so wheat let's stick with wheat typically is grown in areas with dry air dry areas with dry humidity because of the need for it to be dry before it can be harvested and and, and sold so it, back in the 1970s even farmers were using things like diquat and paraquat and they used glyphosate back then to burn down wheat and I think there was a paper by Clark, C.L. Clark, uh, no, just, yeah, anyway, Clark was the author that compared glyphosate, diquat, and paraquat, and I think this was in the early 80s. So this is not a new thing, as Kennedy asserts. He's wrong again. I mean, how can people take this guy seriously? Everything he says is wrong. So he then goes on to say that, that it's on all of the American wheat. It's something like 30% of U.S. wheat might be treated with a burn down or drying agent, or as they call it, a harvest aid, to, to dry it down. And that's strictly dependent upon weather conditions. If it's high humidity and wheat isn't drying, it needs to be harvested before it goes bad, you can use a dry down agent on it. And 
there's a there it's in some areas of the country a high desert you you don't ever have to use it because it's it's ambient humidity is so low it dries on its own you don't get rain so anyway it's it's again he's just wrong and when he talks about the explosion of celiac and other things in 2006 celiac disease has been around for a while and the question about gluten sensitivities and other aspects of of sensitivity to to wheat products we're learning more about that all the time and it's curious why it's a problem more now than it was then it's been increasing for the last 25 years not just the last you know since 2006 and there are many hypotheses for this some of it being that we don't expose people to it early enough and and of course we see peanut allergies and other allergies increasing as well so there's a lot of good discussion around the hygiene hypothesis and how in the industrialized world this is a problem and you you do see celiac and other diseases throughout Europe where they don't necessarily use genetically engineered crops. You do see some glyphosate applied to wheat in different places throughout the world, but in some places where you apply it, Australia, there's very little celiac and gluten disorder. So hard to say what's going on here, but I don't necessarily connect the dots the same way that RFKJ does. People, you may have noticed around that but they also did. the first time they were and excuse me the first time they're they're spraying it directly on food because it used to be they were spraying it early in the season and it would you know it would wash off and, and the corn would get higher than the weeds and you wouldn't have to put that now they're spraying it directly on our food sorry Joe, go ahead. no it's okay so what they when they when they started doing this is there's a direct result like you can see the increase in celiac disease you can see is this like documented well no these are no that's not documented oh. <laughs> so in other words i just make things up but the, these are, there are there's a whole range of diseases that are now you know people are are the science different levels of science have linked to glyphosate exposure again the weenie word linked that some scientists have linked, that is not evidence. Here's the thing. In, when you litigate, you know, when, you, when you're suing somebody for a chemical exposure, you have to go through a, a, a threshold called the Daubert hearing. And the Daubert hearing is a hearing that says, is there sufficient science that it's now considered kind of mainstream that we can show this to a jury and the judge has to make that decision because the judge doesn't want people saying, you know, coming in and saying, oh, a loud noises make me crazy. Right. Right. There has to be before. And, and then a good attorney might be able to convince a, a jury. Yeah, this client got crazy because he heard a loud noise. Well, yeah. And this is where he basically admits that attorneys can manipulate juries to get whatever the outcome is they want, even if it's something ridiculous. He admits that here. Now, Daubert hearing is where you're presenting a judge with data to, to say that this type of case has legitimate standing. And when you give that to a, a judge, a judge is not necessarily a scientist. They just make a decision based upon prevailing evidence and arguments from two attorneys. This is not a scientific exercise. This is a legal exercise. And who can make the best case? So the judge needs to make threshold decision about whether there's sufficient science to show a jury, and that is a very high threshold. So of all of the diseases 
probably caused, probably almost certain, like glyphosate. The only one to pass that threshold was the case we bought for for Hodgkin, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now listen to what he just said. Out of all the things that we know that it ca- that glyphosate causes, all the diseases he, that it causes, we couldn't really come up with any evidence that it does. So he basically admits that everything he's saying is crazy talk and that it does no, no foundation that a judge would accept as a reasonable threshold in a Daubert motion to be able to make a case against it. He freely admits this. I mean, this is amazing stuff. He then goes on to talk about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is the one that has really made waves with respect towards the court cases in glyphosate. And we've talked about this ad nauseum on different aspects of the podcast. But just to review, in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is a type of, of lymphatic cancer. It's a class of lymphatic cancers. It's something like 28 different cancers of several different etiologies. So they're all caused by different reasons, and they're thought to be idiopathic, which means they just occur. And so here, RFKJ and others have attempted to connect glyphosate to this class of cancers. The funny part is with that is that it's not one thing. It's not one type of cancer. There's different, as I mentioned, etiologies that would suggest that this couldn't be the case. Because if there was a specific type that was being caused all the time, maybe in farmers, we could start to put two and two together. But here you're saying it causes this broad class of different cancers. Yet there's no real good evidence of that. And he'll go on to say here that there is. So at that point, we have enough rat studies, enough human studies. We have 10 of each. And we're able to go to the judge and say, this, we got enough science on this now to show that it's non-Hodgkin's being caused by glyphosate. So that... Those were the only cases we brought. And he says caused, but there's no evidence at all that it's caused. There's very, very weak evidence epidemiologically. And there were studies that looked mostly at farmers. They look at cohorts of farmers or or cases of of farmers and asked the question that among applicators, do you see higher incidence of specific types of cancers? And you would see slight associations with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in case control studies. And these were studies that were basically you fill out a, a survey that says, well, here's, here's what I used on my farm. Here's the diseases my family's had. And you kind of put the two, to, two and two together and develop statistical associations. And those types of studies have all kinds of flaws associated with them. And you're, call it, you're having retrospective um, information. You know, what did you use? Was it accurate? But usually this kind of case control study is used as a gateway to a better study. And those are called cohort studies where you analyze an entire group starting on day one and you analyze them going forward. What did they use? What diseases did they get? And when you do those cohort studies, you see those associations fall apart. And the largest cohort study, which is the agricultural health study, which has been going on for decades and has looked at over 54,000 farmers and most of them applicators of, of glyphosate you do not see any association in those groups. So uh, the best studies don't support what he says, and there's no data that show causality, absolutely none. And so this is where, where that argument really is extremely weak. There are a lot of, of you know, really interesting studies that show links between injuries to children 
and and the amygdala and a woman's urine, urine. And those are pretty interesting studies. But when you're looking at this, you have to be very careful of what you're looking at. The two studies he's referring to, one of them was in Indiana, one in California. They were looking at women who are already going to a clinic for different diseases and disorders, and they were looking in their urine. You're finding women who, and then finding an association between women who had problems with children who have problems, which I think there's a lot of other socioeconomic forces at play there. Also, if these women are from agricultural areas and have exposure, then they may be exposed to many different things, whether it's, who knows, drinking water, who knows, other chemicals, who knows. You're, it's just an association. It's not proof. You know, including including sexual development. It's an So, Well, the data on that are really kind of hard to interpret, and there's lots of different studies that have looked at its role as endocrine disruptor. Most of the cases where you see that are at high doses in animals or in tissue culture, which are not humans. But the juries certainly are out. There are more papers that say it's not an endocrine disruptor as those that say it is. And nothing that shows it is that I'm aware of at levels experienced through diet or occupational exposure. And you can see here things are kind of degenerating. I'm bored. I'm going to have to call it quits soon. But let's wrap it up. You know, similar to phthalates. Like phthalates are an endocrine disruptor. Probably the most disturbing endocrine disruptor, and this is something we should all be looking at, is yeah. atrazine. Yeah. Because atrazine, which is now ubiquitous, it's everywhere. But you can take atrazine. This, what is his Jamie. name? Jamie. Jamie. Young you, Jamie. You can look up. <laughs> you can look up this study. I think the guy, the scientist's name is Tyler, I think. And, Maybe his first or second. They took atrazine and they put it in a tank with 40 frogs for yeah. three years. They put it below the exposure levels that EPA considers acceptable to humans. And 30 of those frogs, they were all male frogs, and they were double Z, you know, male frogs, so they were super males. And 30 of those frogs were chemically castrated. Four of them turned into females and produced fertile eggs. Yeah, and we'll wrap it up with this point here because he's shifting from glyphosate to atrazine, which is a really interesting transition. So let's talk about this atrazine stuff. So what's interesting about this is that they, there's a lot of experiments out there. This case was, was by Tyler. I was one of the, was the lead author. Tyler did this in one frog species. And, and Tyrone Hayes has been famous for this in other species with experiments that have been challenging to replicate. But I, I believe the data from Tyler, and I think the idea here is that if you bathe developing frogs in, in, in an agricultural chemistry for three years, you may see some sort of other secondary effects. And there's a thing that's called a over-testicular. You know, it's, it's a way in which the gonads differentiate differentially <laughs> into testes and ovaries, that they do have some, some sort of origin that gets disrupted by atrazine at these low levels. I think that may be legit and people are looking at that and it really is, you know, maybe a word of caution for why we should think about our exposure to it. And so maybe you could limit the exposure to things like atrazine if you had a different chemical that you could use instead to control weeds in cornfields. Maybe that would be glyphosate. <laughs> and if you go back through the literature and you look at things like Duke et al. 2012, figure two shows very nice 
that as glyphosate use has increased, the levels of others like atrazine have decreased proportionally. So you're taking a relatively safe, low toxicity compound increasing and others which could have potential effects are decreasing. This is a good thing. But, you know, this is where RFKJ sees a devil behind every corner and doesn't think with the nuance that science gives us. So I'm going to stop there, but I thank you for listening to this special episode. I felt it was an obligation to spend the time to distill what, what, where, he was, where he was wrong and the few little places where he had a foot in reality. It's important because of the great penetration of the Joe Rogan podcast that when you provide a stage to a charlatan like JFK or RFK Jr., JFK Jr. doesn't have a stage anymore, RFK Jr., you and just let him go. And other places have done this too. And I've listened to him on multiple, multiple formats. And he just, he just makes this stuff up. When you do that, you break the trust in science. You break the trust in food. You break the trust in scientists. And right now we live at a time where technology is giving us longer lives, better treatments, new breakthrough treatments for diseases like sickle cell. We talk about it on the podcast every single week. Instead of foment distrust in that science and in that technology, and worse, call it out as dangerous and turn people against it is a tremendous disservice to the people that may be served by technology. So thank you for listening to this special episode. Please send your comments via Twitter. It's the best place, at Kevin Fulta, and we can continue this conversation online. Very exciting, good times, and thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again in a few days. (laughs) You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.